Hi friends, welcome to another episode of Making Disciples. Uh, my name is Chris and I am your host. It's really, really good to have you with me today. I'm sat here um, wading through a whole collection of questions uh, that listeners have sent me uh, over this summer season. And I thought it'd be really fun to take a couple of these questions and try to do a bit of a Q&A uh, with them, answering them live. And some of these um, questions that I've got, I've tried to respond to personally in terms of sending a private message to that person when they've sent me a private message. Um, these ones, I thought it'd be really fun just to kind of uh, put them together uh, and answer them because they're all questions about the Bible. And I've got loads of different questions that come in uh, all the time from you guys. Um, but I've gathered together four that I want to try and explore with you in today's episode. Uh, if you have a question that you would like to pose to me to chuck into an episode like this or for me to respond to, hey, look, you can find me very easily. Uh, I don't really use Twitter I'm on it, but I don't use it. Uh, but you can tweet me at Rabbi Rogers. That's very easy for you to do. Uh, the other thing that you could do is uh, find me on Instagram. Uh, I use Instagram much more. I'm a visual person. Uh, you can send me a direct message through that. Uh, that is Rabbi Rogers as well. The other alternative is to send an email to Making Disciples. And the email for that is really, really simple. It's questions at wearemakingdisciples.org. Org, and now my brain has gone quiet for a moment. I'm thinking, is it org org uk? No, it's it's not. It's questions at we are making disciples dot com. There you go. Apologise for that one. It's a bit early on a Monday morning. Um, so here we go. Now, why am I looking at questions about the Bible? Well, we've been covering in the last few episodes different ways of reading the Bible, uh, the problems that we might have with the Bible, and one of the problems that we may come across or struggle with when reading the Bible is just not knowing what to do with some of these maybe big questions that come along every now and again. Uh, so I'm hoping that you will find this somewhat interesting as we explore four questions that have come from you, the listeners, uh, on the Bible. And I, I really pray and hope that you find this really inspiring. So here we go. Let's jump straight in on an episode answering your questions about the Bible. let's look at the first question that you have sent in as the listeners number one you asked the question uh or one of you asked the question anyway i have heard there are two creation stories in the bible uh, that contradict each other is this correct well there are a number of places in the bible creation is talked about yes you pick that up in the book of job yes you pick it up in the psalms uh, but actually the clear creation narratives that we have in the bible come from the book of Genesis. Now, I think this question around Genesis, it's coming only in the last few days. And it's partly, I think, coming out of the fact that in the previous episode, I talked about um, the book of Genesis uh, being, uh, or chapter one of the book of Genesis being a poem. Um, I think that's kind of where this is somewhat coming from. I've heard that there are two creation stories in the Bible that contradict. Is this correct? Well, there are let's say two creation stories in the bible there are slightly more than that if you want to add in the ones where the, the psalmist writes about creation joe has creation reference as well um 
but yes, there are two creation stories. Do they contradict? Well, no, they don't contradict. Um, they don't contradict at all. So just story one, you'll find it in Genesis chapter one through to chapter two, verse three, uh, off the top of my head. And the second creation story then continues on from that, from Genesis chapter two, verse four, all the way through to the end of that chapter, which is about 24, 25. Uh, so there's these two creation accounts, really. And the first creation account that you find in Genesis one um, is really a poem. And it is crafted in the Hebrew as a poem. And the only way that you can engage with it is poet, poetic literature. When it's translated into the English, uh, we lose some of that poetry. Uh, it's also the way it's presented in our uh, English Bibles. It, it looks like a flow of text, more like a narrative. Uh, but actually, it's a poem. Uh, Genesis chapter 2, verse 4 onwards, picks up then as a story. And that story uh, has a slightly different purpose behind it. Uh, the two stories do not contradict each other. Uh, but Genesis chapter 1 really is more around uh, the, how Elohim, the Hebrew uh, therefore God, how Elohim, how he created verbally, how, how he speaks things into being. And it's all about how God finds creation good. And ultimately, when he's created humanity, he says it's it's really good. Uh, so this poem is really about explaining somewhat of uh, the creative process of God over either uh, seven days or seven periods of time. Uh, because the word that we have there for day in the Hebrew really does not mean day in terms of 24 hours. Uh, it means a block of time. It, um, so uh, on the first block of time, on the second block of time, on the third block of time. Now we translate that as day. Uh, is it a bad way of translating it? We'll, we'll no. Uh, but the Hebrew quite clearly does not say day in terms of a period of time. It says, it says a block of time. Uh, so there is a really interesting thing around uh, Genesis chapter 1 being a poem and that it sets out creation through seven blocks of time. God creates over the six blocks of time and the seventh block of time he rests. And really it, it links quite clearly to our experience of the way the world functions and the Jewish understanding that on the seventh day there was Sabbath and there was rest. And the reason that we rest is because God rested. Um, but really uh, that's now us reading our interpretation of the way the world functions upon the book of Genesis uh, which was crafted as a poem um, and and what's beautiful you know every every day starts with and God said you know day one verse three and God said uh, verse six and God said verse nine and God said verse 14 and God said uh, there's this recurring rhyming rhythm uh, to the book of Genesis. Now, what I'd love to encourage you to do, if you want to look at this rhyming rhythm, get yourself some coloured uh, markers uh, or highlighter pens. Print yourself out Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 uh, through to 2, 3. Chapter 2, verse 3. Go through it and, and, and highlight every time it says, and God said. Uh, highlight every time it says, let there be. 
um, because you let there be light, let there be an expanse, let there be water. Uh, so highlight every time you see it, let there be. Um, you might want to highlight and God blessed and God said, those kind of phrases. Uh, you could uh, highlight every time you see the word good appear. And it was so, you might want to repeat that because that rhymes, uh, um, recurs in there as well. So Genesis chapter 1 was a poem. Genesis chapter 2, well, what is that then? Genesis chapter 2 really is the introduction about how did we get in the mess that we are in? Um, how did sin enter the world? That's really what Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3 is really focusing on. Um, but it's really, um, it's also uh, really focusing on hu the human our part to play in the created order uh, so um, I've just got my Bible in front of me so it's it's uh, I can jump around in this episode for you but uh, let's look at this Genesis chapter 2 verse 15 says this and the Lord God took the man and um, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it at the heart of Genesis chapter 2 is this call for human beings to be co-creators with God looking after the created order so Genesis chapter 2 this second story that we have in the bible is less interested in the mechanics of of how the world was put together but it really focuses is on the role of human beings uh, in the created order of god um so that the two stories are different now there is a problem with genesis chapter 1 and let's say genesis chapter 2 or story number 2 the name of God in Genesis 1 is different to the name of God in Genesis 2. So people often say, ah, oh, well, obviously there's a contradiction here. Uh, there's two different gods. Uh, there's the God of Genesis 1 and the God of Genesis 2. Because in Genesis 1, God is called Elohim. And in Genesis 2, God is called Yahweh, uh, which is the re revelation of God's name from the book of Exodus. So... Do we have two gods here? Are these two creation stories that are based from two different gods that are put together, which we miss when it's translated into the word God? And the answer is simply no, not at all. Genesis chapter 1 is a poem and had a different source. It came... Look, put it this way. The book of Genesis was not written by one author and it wasn't um, written by one author on one sitting. The book of Genesis is a couple of texts been pulled together to bring about this book. Text number one is uh, the Genesis 1 poem. And that, that had a different author to Genesis chapter 2 and so on. These two texts were put together and by putting them together became one book, the book of Genesis. But actually they're from two different authors. How do we know that? Well, the, the the writing style are different. It's like somebody has sandwiched together a children's storybook and a history book together. That's not me saying the Genesis story is a children's story. I'm just trying to get you the idea of the writing styles here. A poem, uh, poetry book has been stapled together alongside a science document. You know, the writing styles are so different. You're like, hang on, this is two different authors here. That's what we've got. And in Genesis chapter one in the poem, God is called Elohim. Elohim is the Hebrew that literally just translates as God, the phrase God. Genesis chapter 2, God is called Yahweh, Yahweh, this, this Jewish name for God. Uh, and it's distinctive when it comes in that suddenly God now has a name that's it's a title. We translate it as Lord, um, which also communicates to us that there's two different authors here with this book. But it's the specific name for God that the Jewish people had. 
Did the Jewish people ever use the name Elohim? Yes, all the time in the Bible. All the time. Um, so the fact that you have two stories, two, two accounts of creation, looking at them from slightly different perspectives, they don't contradict each other, uh, but we've just got to understand that they're kind of put together, they're stapled together. Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 verse 3 onwards kind of come together as two alternative uh, narratives for how the beginning was the beginning uh, but they don't contradict each other in any shape or form so I hope that answers your question uh, on that one question number two I've heard that unicorns are in the bible is this true and if so does it not discredit the bible yes great question are unicorns in the bible Right, well, the answer to that question is, well, which Bible? Which translation of the Bible? Is the word unicorn in the original Hebrew or Greek Bible? No, because the word unicorn is, is a modern word, okay? But the Hebrew word raim, R-E-Y-M, uh, now we would translate it as wild ox. But in the King James Bible, which was translated in 1611, in 1611, they were translating this word rhyme and they translated it in the King James Bible as unicorn. Unicorn. Now, why did they do that? So, rhyme was first translated into Greek and the first time it was translated into the Greek, it, it was the word monokeros, M-O-N-O-K-E-R-O-S, which literally translates as an animal with one horn, a one-horned animal. Actually, uh, we would now probably translate that as a as a rhinoceros, okay? But when that Bible was originally being translated, they had to translate it, uh, understanding what they understood at that point, and they rendered it unicorn for some bonkers reason. Um, so the King James Bible, and still some King James Bibles, well, you'll find the word unicorn in the Bible, in that translation of the Bible, but you will not find it in the original Hebrew or Greek that the Bible is, okay? In your modern translation, you will not find it, but in a King James version of the New Testament, you may well find and still find the word unicorn in the Bible. So I hope you find that interesting, and it raises the question for us, doesn't it, about making sure that we have a good translation of the bible therefore i would say to you uh make sure you're reading a modern translation i do not like the king james version of the bible although some of my pentecostal friends think it is the only translation of the bible that is out there and i would say actually it's not one of the strongest translations of the bible at all because you know king james bible is translated actually from the latin not from the Greek and the Hebrew. We want to be translating from the original source. Um, I prefer the NIV. The NRSV is very good. And the ESV is very good as well. Um, but picking yourself a Bible that is a good, solid Bible uh, is really, a good translation of the Bible is really important. So you don't get sidelined or blindsided when you find the word unicorn uh, in there so there have you heard that the word unicorn is in the bible yes i have it is there i do know about that it's actually a king james translation uh, you will not find it in the original language at all next question chris 
Chris, you said in a recent episode that Jesus was not a carpenter. What are you on about? Have you not read the Bible? (laughs) Have you not read the Bible? Yes, I have read the Bible. And I'd love to say back to the person that wrote that question, have you not read the Bible? So you've obviously read a translation of the Bible. Uh, the challenge is to actually read the Bible. And uh, what I mean by that is going back to the original language. So Jesus's profession in the scriptures is described as a tecton, T-E-K-T-O-N, tecton. When the Bible was originally translated to English back to the King James Version, the world that the Bible, when, when the King James Bible was being translated, Uh, The way the world functioned is homes and buildings and properties were being made out of wood. They were not made out of brick. They were not made out of stone. England, we had a wood source and therefore homes were made of wood. So when we translated the word wood, rather than translating it as builder or craftsman or stonemason, it was translated as a carpenter because carpenters built homes, houses. Uh, and, and, And therefore that stuck. It stuck from the King James Version that Jesus was a carpenter. But actually, the word tecton. Now, tecton can be translated as craftsman. It can be translated as stonemason. But actually, if we go back to the Middle East, the the primary work material uh, in the Middle East wasn't wood. If you go to Galilee and you go to Jerusalem, you see very quickly the primary material to work with is stone. Uh, the wood that they had had to be shipped in from the north. You know, the Bible talks about the cedars of Lebanon. So when the when the new uh, when the um, temple in Jerusalem had wood as a part of that infrastructure, they came from the cedars of Lebanon. Uh, the word that we have there for tecton in that world is understood more as a stonemason. Now there were carpenters around. Uh, carpenters did build tables. Carpenters did build ships. Uh, Capitals did make plows, um, but actually the word tecton is more likely to, or really does get, get used to reference stone masonry, uh, but it also is used to to describe plumbing work, a plumber. Um, so was Jesus a carpenter? Well, what we know from the Greek is he was a tecton, and and therefore he was a craftsman. Uh, in its broadest sense, you could just say a builder, somebody who worked with the raw materials to make stuff. Was he specifically a carpenter? We do not know that. But what we do know is he worked with raw materials. And what we do know about uh, men in Nazareth and Galilee 2000 years ago they had to be general practitioners when it came to craftsmanship they went wherever the work was Uh, so they'd be going to be a part of the rebuilding of new cities uh, new city gates and that kind of stuff so they'd be putting their attention to whatever uh, was needed to be made and they were good with their hands Uh, so was jesus a carpenter he was wider than a carpenter he was a tecton he was a builder Uh, he was a craftsman there you go I love the question Chris you said in a recent episode that Jesus was not a carpenter are you what you on have you not read the Bible yes and uh, the Greek is translated 
as craftsmen. Next question. Here we go. Uh, next question is this. Jonah. I have real problems with the story of Jonah. A man eaten by a whale. Really? <laughs> I love it. I have a problem with Jonah. What do you mean, Chris, you've got a problem with Jonah? It's a bit of a bizarre story, isn't it? I do have a problem with Jonah. Uh, not because I don't believe it to be true. Uh, I certainly believe there was a man called Jonah and I certainly believe there's a city called Nineveh and I certainly believe that Jonah was a prophet that went to uh, Nineveh. There's just a few things in the story that don't necessarily add up for me. Um, now, you, in the question, you, you said a man gets eaten by a whale. Let me just clarify this for a moment. So Jonah, chapter 1, verse 17. Um, the, the clarity here is this. Um, it says in, in 17, verse 17, Now uh, Yahweh provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. So often it gets talked about that Jonah was swallowed by a whale. Lots of debates out there. Could a man live in a whale? But actually the phrase here is a huge fish. Now it needs to be fish, not whale. And I'm going to explain to you why uh, in a second. But it really does need to stay as fish. We cannot change that narrative to a whale because um, if you take the story as a whale, Jonah is swallowed by a whale, he's spat up on the beach from the whale and he goes and preaches to the people of Nineveh. We're actually missing out on a massive uh, historical piece here. What I'd like to do is just give you a little bit of information about the people of Nineveh for a moment. If you want to check what, I, what I'm about to say out, you can go to the British Museum in London. If you go to the British Museum in London, let me know you're going. I'd love to join you and I'll, you can buy me a coffee. Um, there's a Nineveh section. You can enter uh, in the museum to a section of uh, a gateway into Nineveh. Nineveh. It's beautiful. You actually get a real idea of what Nineveh was like. But in the Nineveh section, there is a, a wall carving. And the wall carving is of the god Dagon, D-A-G-O-N. Now, Dagon was half man, half fish. He was the fish god. And Dagon is depicted as, um, uh, as male with scales. He's got the head, and on the top of his head, he's got this giant fish head. And they worshipped this god Dagon. Now, why is this important? I think this is really important because when Jonah is spat out of this giant fish, the narrative then becomes, hey, here's a prophet. He's been spat out of the mouth of a fish. We worship the fish, fish god. Therefore, this guy needs to be listened to. He's a prophet that's been delivered by the god that we worship. And it allowed Jonah access uh, to prophetically speak into the lives of the people of Nineveh. And I think that is really, really important in understanding why Jonah, um, why it's a fish, and why that connects with the people of Nineveh. They worship the fish god. And therefore, I think it really needs to stay as fish, not as whale. Because it's only when we understand that he was spat out of the mouth of a fish does that really make some sense for us about the people of, of Nineveh and why they responded to him. Now, the other thing that I really struggle with about this story if you want to get a map and put a pin where Nineveh is and then look at where the ocean is, it is not a 
journey that would take you an hour or two. It would take days. Nineveh is too far away from the ocean uh, for Jonah to be spat up on the beach and appear in Nineveh. When Jonah was spat up on the beach, he then had to travel a heck of a long way to eventually get to the city of Nineveh. So although the story works beautifully in the sense that Jonah spat up on the beach and he then goes into this city and he then proclaims to them and they're wowed by the fact he's been spat out of this fish and they're wowed by what he says, the fact is that it doesn't work like that. Uh, the, the distance between the beach and Nineveh, we are talking days upon days of walking. Okay, so I have a problem with Jonah. I think it's a bit odd that Joan, where the, the story functions, but the point of the story isn't, uh, and we get down to this question, is it true or is it truth? Uh, the story is a truth story about how God speaks to the people and challenges them. Uh, I don't doubt that there was a prophet that went to the people of Nineveh. I just think the story is has been crafted in a way that works well as a story, but doesn't necessarily work or function uh, as a historical event. Um, so that's it, that. That is a trouble for me, and, and there, it does boil down to this question for us of what is true and what is truth. Uh, what we are looking for in the West is. Um, did this happen the way that it says it happens and i think we have to seriously get our head around the idea uh, that the bible has stories in it that are myth now the word myth to us means it's not true like fable uh, but actually there's a writing style in the bible called myth um, where it's it's an event that truthfully happened but has been crafted in a fairy tale kind of way so it's true but it's been crafted in a way that has this magic about it uh, and 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 therefore it's a, st a style of writing it's a narrative device many of us in the west really struggle with this and conservative bible teachers that i've wrestled this with really they struggle with this because they just want it to be solid it's got to be concrete is it true just because jonah is this biblical myth does not mean it's not true it just means the writing style of it is that of a um, fairy tale kind of tale rather than uh, it being uh, it maybe 100% uh, historically ac accurate, right? Um, and that is not me saying I don't believe it. And you've got to be really, really clear on this. Um, people do get their knickers in a twist uh, over what they think is credible Bible teaching. Uh, I am a credible Bible teacher. Um, to be a credible Bible teacher, you have to really understand what is biblical myth. So there you go. Four questions from the Bible or about the Bible. Genesis, unicorns, carpentry and Jonah. If you have questions of your own, I would love it if you would throw them my way. I would love to do more episodes like this where we get to look at some challenging topics. So I would love you to throw them my way. If you'd like to come back on me, you really can leave 
a comment at the bottom of the episode. Now, many of you listen to this on Apple and um, other those kind of pod, those apps. But if you go to the Making Dive Disciples website, go to the podcast section, actually under the episodes there, you, you can click on a comment and leave a comment. And I would love to hear your comments. So friends, I hope you find that really interesting. If you did, get yourself a copy of the Bible book by book, because a lot of what I've just said to you today, you'll find in the book, Bible book by book. Um, love to encourage you to get a copy of that. Friends, until next time, grace and peace. Have a great week and we'll catch up with you soon.